Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 122, Christ is Risen. Well, thanks for joining me for another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Uh, I've got a very interesting interview lined up for you, which you'll get to hear in a moment, and I'll introduce in a moment. Uh, but it's at this point in every episode that I normally take what I uh, what is a very weak attempt uh, at a monologue of sorts. Um, I've done that since the beginning of the podcast, I think, or at least pretty close to it, uh, and it's been my way of trying to sort of emulate other uh, podcasts that I've listened to uh, or currently listen to. Um, but one of the problems I have is I always feel like I'm uh, kind of artificially you know, forcing myself to come up with something to say during the monologue, and it never feels quite natural. Um, uh, you know, it, it just, it doesn't, it, it's always difficult to come up with material, and it doesn't very often feel like I'm being very genuine. I mean, I'm telling true facts about myself and, and about what's going on, but, uh, but it just always feels so drummed up. So I'm not gonna do that today, and instead what I'd like to do is, um, Maybe try something a little bit different uh, moving forward, but it requires a little bit of work from you, uh, my listening audience. Um, what I'm thinking of maybe doing, and this thought just occurred to me as I was trying to uh, <laughs> think of how to um, drum up a monologue. Uh, what I'm thinking of doing is inviting you, my listeners, to send in questions to me um, about myself, you know, my personal life, or or about uh, my thoughts on theological issues or political issues or whatever it might be. Not that you have you know much interest in what it is that I have to say, but if you do have any uh, questions that you 'd like me to answer about anything um, then uh, why don 't you shoot me an email at chris at theapologetics dot com or or you can leave a um, comment i suppose at the in the at the blog post for this podcast episode or you can shoot me a message on Facebook or whatever uh, with what you know you 'd like me to answer during the monologue portion of my next episode um, whenever the, uh, whenever I put that out um, and like i said i mean i 'll answer questions you have for me about anything um, whatever that may be you can challenge me on some particular issue you can um, inquire into thoughts I have on politics or, or whatever the case may be. Um, again, I don't think that my thoughts are all that particularly um, worthwhile, <laughs> but if you uh, are interested uh, in getting to know me better uh, or whatever, uh, then why don't you reach out to me in that way, and that'll give me the ability to less artificially drum up uh, monologue material. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into the next promo in my rotation, which is for Cold Case Christianity with Jay Warner Wallace. Welcome to the Cold Case Christianity Broadcast, the only Christian case-making program hosted by a cold case homicide detective. Jay Warner Wallace has been investigating cold case murders in Los Angeles County for over a decade. His work has been featured on Fox News, Court TV, and Dateline. For more information about Jim's work and the case for Christianity, please visit coldcasechristianity.com. Now, here's your host, Jay Warner Wallace. Well, thanks for joining us at Cold Case Christianity. I'm Jay Warner Wallace. I'm a big fan of Jay Warner Wallace. I'm, I, I consider him a friend. I've had the opportunity to meet him in person and to spend some time on the phone with him, both on and off the air. Uh, and I really enjoy him, and I, and I highly recommend his ministry. Uh, I've, I've had him on the show a couple of times. Back in 2011, in episode 28, he joined me to discuss the Gospels as reliable eyewitness testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ, uh, as well as back in 2013, in episode 107, to discuss uh, what was then his recent book, Cold Case Christianity. And in both of those episodes, he his ministry at the time was called Please Convince Me, and he still does have the pleaseconvinceme.com website, but now his his ministry has focused more around Cold Case Christianity, and his website is coldcasechristianity.com. And if you go there, uh, you can find links to videos and, and his podcast, which I recommend, and that's uh, the, the promo that I just played was just the first minute or so of, um, of one of his recent episodes. Uh, and you can find links to his book books and a contact link, all sorts of stuff. Um, I would encourage you to check his website out. Um, 
and uh, give his podcast a listen. You know, I, he and I don't agree with, uh, on everything. He leans more in the direction, it seems to me, of evidential apologetics, whereas I tend to lean in the direction of presuppositional apologetics. Um, you know, I'm a young earth creationist, and he is not. I'm an annihilationist, and he is not. Uh, you know, and so there are a number of areas where he and I disagree, but he's got such a, a passion uh, for apologetics, and he's got a real love for his brothers and sisters in Christ, whether or not they agree with him, uh, that, uh, th- that I've got a, a tremendous amount of love for him. And so I would encourage you to check his ministry out. Again, the website is coldcasechristianity.com. And if you want to listen to my past interviews with him, you can go back to episodes 28 and 107. Uh, So with that promo out of the way, let's go ahead and move into today's interview. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake. Come and rise up from the grave Christ is risen from the dead We are one with Him again Come awake, come awake Come and rise up from the grave Hello and welcome to another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Today I'm once again joined by what I'm sure will be an excellent interview guest to discuss what all Christians have got to agree is a subject of critical importance to the Christian faith, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. My guest is Dr. Adam Johnson, and he's Assistant Professor of Theology at the Tory Honors Institute at Biola University, where he received his Bachelor's in Philosophy and his Master's in New Testament. His bio at Biola describes him as a theologian who focuses on the doctrine of the atonement, exploring the many ways in which the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ affect the reconciliation of all things to God. He's author of 2012's God's Being in Reconciliation, The Theological Basis of the Unity and Diversity of the Atonement in the Theology of Karl Barth. He's co-author of a chapter in Locating Atonement, which is coming out in just a couple of months, if I'm not mistaken. And he's a contributing editor of the upcoming TNT Clark Companion to the Atonement, But he joins me today to discuss his very recently published book, Atonement, A Guide for the Perplexed. Dr. Johnson, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks. You know, as I often do with my interview guests, I'd love to begin by getting to know you personally a little bit before we dive into the topic at hand. And I like to start with uh, my guest's testimony or faith background. So if you don't mind sharing that, can you tell us, uh, you know, were you raised in a Christian home? Was, Was the faith something you embraced early on or later in life? That kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was raised by, um, missionaries. My parents, so my, my mom thought she was going to marry, she was marrying into a, a professional baseball kind of relationship. My dad was aiming to be a catcher. And, uh, some point along the road, um, God got a hold of him and ended up heading to the mission field in Brazil. Far, far cry from being a, from, from the, from what she thought she was into getting into. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so pretty much I was born and raised, or I was raised in Brazil, first grade through 12th grade, aside from a year or two and on furlough in the States. Um, so yeah, so I was, I was raised, um, in the church, not only in the church, but in, in the academy of sorts. Um, I, you know, university or, um, seminary students were a commonplace in our home. And, uh, so I, I, I grew up around theological and biblical discussions, um, so the the, the 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 Christian faith was always a vibrant and living thing, as far as I could tell, and uh, it was largely a matter of me growing up into it and realizing um, how big it was and how how it how it connected to, to everything I cared about. And uh, so a lot of that happened. You know, there were a couple of main transitions in in junior high and high school where I started taking my faith more seriously and reading my Bible, that kind of thing, where where it really came alive. But then in college. As I began to dive into the world of ideas and seeing how Christian faith connected to those, that's where things really came alive in my mind, and I started to see, no, 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 okay, this this is this this is putting me in touch with all of reality, and through that, um, helping me helping helping me change how I live in all sorts of ways. Sure. Um, so no, it was. I mean, it didn't. It wasn't all up. It, you know, it, it wasn't all rosy. Um, but it was very much a you know raise up a your child and 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 then I followed that path, uh, making it my own. Yeah. Well, when is it that teaching became something that you were interested in pursuing? Yeah, people would ask me if I wanted to be a missionary like my dad and my mom, and uh, my answer is pretty much always no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to be a teacher like my dad. Um, so, so from as far, you know, as far back as I can remember, you know, other than wanting to be a garbage man and a milkman, you know, that kind of, you know, (laughs) in in kindergarten, um, 
uh, and wanting to be a Navy SEAL when I was in junior high. Um, <laughs> no, oh man, no, no, that was a real dream. Um, you know, as, you know, as far back as I can, where I was thinking seriously about it, I wanted to teach. So the, the real question was, um, you know, what, what area to, to study in order to be able to teach. Uh, so now that that dream goes way back, it's just part of my DNA. Um, you know, even in high school, I was, I was leading, I was teaching, you know, um, our high school youth group Bible studies and that kind of thing. I just, I just, it's just who I am. Mm. You know, a few months ago, I stayed with a friend of mine, and, and I think a friend of yours who lives in La Mirada, California, just down the street from the campus of Biola University, where you now teach. Besides having earned your bachelor's and your master's there at Biola, what brought you there to teach? And and for those listening who might be seeking an education, why might they want to consider Biola, and how can they go about learning more if that's something they're interested in? Yeah, I've taught it about, you know, if, if you take individual courses, and so not teaching full-time, but just teaching one course here and there, I've probably taught it five or six different schools. And uh, everything that I had to work really, really hard to do, um, despite the curriculum at other schools, here is built into the, the core of the, of the institutional structure. Hmm. So, you know, you know, if you're, you're teaching an, an intro to intro to whatever class, you know, half the students don't want to be there. Um, a quarter of them, you know, have already, you know, have some familiarity with the subject and aren't that interested. And then maybe a handful of them are really eager to learn. And even, even then, um, most of them are there expecting, you know, sort of a passive, I'm going to receive information kind of model. And what I long to do with my students is, is to... Uh, to work through the material together, to learn together. I, I think of teaching as something not where I have content and I give it to you, but I've, I've devoted my life to studying this material. Join me in studying it together. I can pass along you know, a, a way of studying this, but, but it's very much an act of you joining me. Mm. So the way I would do that would be cultivating uh, reading groups outside of class through extracurricular, you know, getting a group of students to read Plato's Republic or a group of students to read Dante's Divine Comedy or something like that. And we'd read it and discuss it. And, you know, because I'd read those texts so many times, a lot of it was me facilitating the discussion, but then I was learning too, right alongside them. Um, and, uh, and that kind of thing is built right into the core of the honors program. I mean, our classes are three hour long seminar style discussions with, you know, 12 to 16 students working through a classic text and, uh, you know, right in the middle of it, you know, as I'm asking questions and they're, and they're working through passages of the different texts, I'm, I'm learning with them. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the reason to come, you know, for me to come here and for, for any student to come here is, uh, in, in our honors program, we have it about as close as you can get it to what education is meant to be in a, in a personal one-on-one mentoring sort of relationship so that the institution gets it in the way as little as possible, um, you know, from, from real learning. Yeah. It's so much fun. <laughs> it sounds like it. And it makes me almost wish I lived in California, <laughs> uh, but that's not something I would do in my wildest uh, imaginations. Now, <laughs> of course, uh, you're no doubt interested in a variety of areas of theology, just like I am and, and you know, many of us like-minded uh, theologians. But if your CV is any indication, you're particularly interested in one topic, perhaps above all others, that of the atonement. How, how did that come to play such a prominent role in your thinking? Yeah. So after college, um, you know, I took a year off. We, my, my wife and I got married right after college and uh, I took a year off, didn't want to study much. I just wanted to be married and, and do something that, that would help me in the long run. So I worked um, construction for an independent contractor that year. It was a great experience. Um, and then the, the three years after that, while I was doing an MA down here, pretty much I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I was talking with a mentor um, whom I now work for, Paul Spears, uh, here in the Tory program, I was talking with him and it, it, it was, it wasn't quite like a conversion experience. I didn't hear a voice from God or anything, but I felt God saying, study the atonement. And, you know, I got goosebumps and, you know, shiver down my spine and everything. And, uh, you know, from that, I could look back and see a trajectory of discussions and, and books I'd read. And, and that I, I discovered that this had been an interest of mine, even though I wasn't aware of it. And, uh, I haven't looked back, you know, from, from, from that realization that this is what I wanted to do with my life, that I wanted to study the doctrine of the atonement. 
uh, from there, I dove into the history of the doctrine, and every class I took from that point on, I was relating the the doctrine to whatever the subject matter of the course was, whether it was you know Isaiah or medieval theology or pastoral care, and uh, you know I've, I, that's, I just kept on doing that. Well, you know, when I introduced you, I, I said that uh, the atonement is of critical importance to the Christian faith. Do you think that – did I overstate that at all, or do you think it is really critical? But do you think that perhaps uh, Christians don't give it enough thought? Huh. Yeah, you know, um, and the problem is, you know, if, if you're talking with, with someone who just loves caring for dogs, you know, the, the, and doing a do- dog adoption and dog rescue stuff, and that, that's all they can talk about. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I recognize that I have the disease, right? I mean, <laughs> I, you know, give me, give me five minutes and I can relate the doctrine of the atonement to anything. It's not a bad disease to have, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, so part of me thinks, um, you know, like anyone else who is absolutely in love with what they do, um, you know, of course I think everyone should do this. On the other hand, this is the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is, this is the, the core event that, that shapes the Christian life, that the, uh, the allowed the apostles to reframe everything that they thought about the people of Israel and its calling and vocation. And this is the this is the event from which the church takes its moorings. Um, you know, it takes the whole Trinity to explain this act. You know, Christology is a, is, is a preface or a preamble to saying what it took for Jesus to be the kind of person who could actually do this. Mm. Uh, you know, eschatology is awaiting is waiting for the risen Lord to return. Um, yeah, so, so on, on the one hand, I'm in love with it. So, I, you know, I, I, maybe I'm the least um, qualified person to say because I'm too in love with it. On the other hand, um, it really does take all of Christian doctrine to unpack this this uh, you know this work of Christ. And I really do think there's a, a good reason to say this is the no, this is the central commitment of the church. Um, you know, everything stems from this in a significant way. Yeah, I certainly agree. Now, your book, Atonement, A Guide for the Perplexed, how, how is it different from other books that people might find on the shelves of their local Christian bookstore or whatever that deal with the topic of atonement? Yeah. Well, um, part of, let's see. I, I rarely assign primary or sorry, secondary sources to my students. I, so, so I, I don't know when the time, last time is I assigned a book, you know, written in the 21st century or, or to my students. Um, I figure to get a good education, what you need is to go back and read stuff from the, from the fifth century, from the, you know, from the third century BC, uh, you know, interacting with the classics. So, you know, then, so the question is why write, <laughs> why write a book myself? <laughs> And the only reason I could really justify it was uh, this book is not trying to tell you so much what to think as to help you have the resources and be able to think well as you interpret those figures throughout history. Hmm. So I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not jumping right into questions that people ask about the atonement. Uh, I'm, I don't have a list of, you know, of nine questions that are, you know, that there are contemporary debates, you know, surrounding those questions. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping back into the into the character of God, into the doctrine of the Trinity, and the doctrine of the div- divine attributes, and trying to give a, a, a really big picture scope perspective on what's going on in the doctrine, and a range of interpretive um, helps and guides, so that as you're reading Athanasius, which absolutely everyone should read on the Incarnation, it's the shortest, best book ever written on the Atonement. It's amazing. Uh, so, so, you know, so as people are reading a book like his or Calvin's Institutes or something, um, with these tools and questions in their mind, they might be better equipped to see the genius of what's going on in those books. So that, that's probably one of the biggest uh, distinguishing features of the book. I'd say that um, of, of contemporary books, I've probably attended to the relationship between the atonement and the doctrine of God more, more carefully than most uh, and in one other way, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm just exceptionally eager to um, unpack the the, the full um, wealth and breadth of the doctrine. You know, I'm, 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 it's it's not that I just want to introduce you to my dad. I want you to meet the whole extended family. <laughs> um, and uh, but there are a lot of people that are interested in doing that. I'm trying to explain. The, re- the theological reason underlying the diversity, uh, the, the richness within this doctrine. 
Um, so, so a lot of folks will use language or culture in order to explain why there are so many different accounts of Christ's death and resurrection and their meaning throughout the New Testament. Um, I don't mind those, but I think there's a reason for it that goes deeper than that that has to do with who God is. So that's probably the other distinguishing feature of the book. I see. Well, let's take a little bit of a brief tour through the chapters of your book. I, I want to tease our listeners a little bit into uh, <laughs> picking up a copy of their own and, and, and you know, uh, reading what you have to say in greater depth. But I'd like to at least introduce them a little bit to each each of the chapters, beginning with the first chapter, which you call Mining the Riches. Uh, in this chapter, you write about this all-too-often question that's asked um, that begins most conversations about the atonement. Uh, and you talk about what some of the motivations behind this question are and what you see as some of the inadequacies of this question and, and the approach. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, so I was ready to head off to do my PhD, and I was talking with the pastor at our church, and when he learned that I wanted to study the atonement, he asked me, so uh, he had this really funny look as he asked, a mischievous look, and uh, he asked, so, so tell me, uh, so which theory of the atonement do you believe in? <laughs> And uh, he was setting a trap, and he knew it, and he was just waiting to see what I'd do with it. And uh, the reason for this is um, back in back in I don't know, right around 1920, 19, I think nineteen thirty, uh, this Swedish theologian Gustav Aulén had written a really influential book, and it really shaped discussions. And what he was doing was helping people see that there was more to the doctrine of the atonement than just penal substitution or a form of it. And he expanded it to three main views throughout the history of the church. And the, the, you know, one of the views where Christ defeats Satan was dominant in the first thousand years. Um, the second view where Christ um, satisfied the honor of God or satisfied the justice of God was dominant for the next 500 years or so. And then the, um, the view known as exemplarism, where Christ provides an example of, God, of love and righteousness so powerful that it sweeps us up into that kind of life, um, overcoming our sin. Uh, was dominant in the time of modern theology and beyond, and it was a you know it's a really short, succinct, compelling account of uh, of the doctrine. Uh, the problem is, it's just it's it's wrong, uh, <laughs> deeply wrong, in a, in a number of different ways. Um, and, you know, one of them is pretty much everyone in the history of the church has affirmed all three of those, so there aren't three distinct periods. And the other problem is that most people affirm more than those three. So it'd be like saying, um, you know, to, to understand the United States, you need to understand three things, um, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. <laughs> and for the first 300 years of the United States existence, we, we, we celebrated Thanksgiving. And for the next 400 years of our existence, we celebrated Christmas. And now we celebrate Easter. So, well, well, for one thing, you know, the United States is not 900 years old. Uh, so that's problematic. And, man, there's so much more to the, to the United States, even if you just go to with celebrating major holidays. Yeah, and there's the Super Bowl. <laughs> um, so, so, um, so my answer to him was all of them and more. And um, and then I so I spend the rest of the book trying to unpack that. And 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 the, the goal there is to help people see um, you know, th- this is this is not a small doctrine to which we're meant to give an answer. It's a doctrine that's so big we spend the rest of our lives unpacking it as we come to know God better and worship Him. So, you know, as I mentioned, the title of the chapter is Mining the Riches, and, and it reminded me of an analogy that um, uh, a friend of mine named Steve Jeffrey uh, gave. He, he's the uh, he's a co-author of a book called um, uh, Pierced for Our Transgressions, I think, and it's it's specifically on substitutionary atonement. But in but in his analogy of the uh, the atonement, he, he likens it to uh, a diamond and all the different facets that you can look at it. Th- uh, you know the angles at which you can look through it and, and see a different picture. And I'm rem- and, and I'm reminded of that by the title of this chapter, "Mining the Riches." And you explain in the chapter that this is a, a sort of governing image behind the whole book. Can you explain that for us and how it illustrates what you see as the approach that we really should be taking to studying the atonement instead of just sort of trying to find the, the the theory of the atonement. Sure, sure. Well, you know, as people try to explain why uh, why um, folks should attend a university and get a university degree, there, there are a bunch of different reasons that they give. Uh, you know, it's, it, it helps you in the job market. You know, in the long run, it'll make you, make you richer and more successful. Um, it'll, it'll broaden your mind. It'll... Um, It'll give you intellectual resources you didn't have before. And it's a place where, you know, for our culture, 
this is where you do your growing up <laughs> or a lot of us or a lot of us do um, this is a place where you can you, where you can meet a spouse because um, there, there's such a high concentration of people somewhat like you you know there are a whole bunch of reasons um, given why you should pursue you know, higher education and get an under, undergraduate degree I don't really want to pick a fight with any of those hmm. You know, the, the, the experience of undergraduate education is, is such a valuable one for people who are ready for it. Um, it's such a valuable one in so many ways. I think all of those reasons are good reasons to pursue uh, a college education. Now, some of them are more important than others in this case. Um, but the, the, the work of Christ is such a complex event. There's so much going on in it that any one explanation of it is just silly almost mm. it'd be it'd be like trying to answer the question you know where, where you know, someone asks me uh, about my wife and asks so is your wife beautiful is she smart or is she kind <laughs> you know and, and like well first of all i'm kind of insulted because only those three really you, you don't know my wife um and then i'm certainly not going to pick between them uh, so so the, the, this you know the death and resurrection of jesus has so much going on to it and this this is God's chosen way of sharing himself with us. If, if we're going to reduce the doctrine to three things, effectively we're redu- reducing God's gift uh, to us down to three things. And that just doesn't do it, doesn't doesn't cut it. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm also reminded of an uh, an experience that a friend of my mine had when he met Ravi Zacharias. He he, he met Ravi and he, and he asked him. He said, "You know, uh, you must have read through the Bible dozens upon dozens of times. Do you, do you ever feel when you're going through it the umpteen billionth time that you've sort of got it by now?" And, and Ravi said to him, "You know, I can read the works of Shakespeare two or three times and feel like I've pretty much got it, but no matter how many times I crack open the the pages of." scripture, I, I find something new. Uh, and, and so it makes me, it leads me to ask you, do, do you think that there's, do you think it's possible to completely mine the riches of the atonement? Or do you think that for, in, until he returns, we'll be uh, discovering new nuances and, and new facets to the, to this, to the riches that, uh, that is the atonement? Yeah, I, I'd want to say at least until he returns and maybe on into eternity. Hmm. Um, and the, the reason for that is, um, God himself is inexhaustible. We'll never come to the point where we have comprehended God to the point of boredom, like perhaps one could with Macbeth. Um, but that God was living and active and present in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means that all the richness, all the, the diversity, all the, all the wonder that God is, was present and active there. That doesn't mean that scripture unpacks it all, there it is, you know, at some points it develops it fully. At some points it just, you know, hints and witnesses and, and whispers um, just because it can only say so much. Um, but no, be, because of who God is, because of the richness of his own life and being, and because all of that, the fullness of that was present in Christ, we're going to be able to contemplate that event, that death and resurrection, uh, certainly until the Lord comes again. And I think beyond that. And we'll have him right there to ask uh, ask questions of <laughs> if we if we want to know the answer to something. Right. Uh, uh, that's pretty exciting to think about. Now, in the second chapter of your book, it's called "On Aspects, Theories, and Orthodoxy." You write about how uniquely synthetic the doctrine of the atonement is. That that is how intimately connected it is to various other areas of systematic theology. Um, you write that this is in contrast to less synthetic doctrines that could arguably developed with less reference to others, things like creation, anthropology, homartiology. Uh, you don't go into all the many numerous related areas with which our understanding of the atonement must be th- synthesized, but you do list five main elements uh, that you think are essential to every theory of the atonement. Can you briefly summarize what those are for us? Yeah, um, and what I was trying to do there was was give sort of uh, handholds uh, that they would help give people a feel for the overall shape of the doctrine. I wasn't trying to be completely exclusive. If someone else came up with a different way of saying, "No, there are six main elements," you know, I, I'm not going to pick a fight with them over that. This was just meant to be a, a help. Um, but the, but the first one was thinking about the cast. And so so thinking about okay, who who are the relevant. Uh, uh, people or or or, or, or um, personal forces involved within this doctrine. Um, so, you, you, of course, we want to say you know the 
Holy Trinity. Um, you know, the, the, this was the will of the Father. Uh, it was it was it was accomplished through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we want to say the whole Holy Trinity was there, and of course we want to say each individual person. Um, but beyond that, you know, it, it was, was there was more going on. Uh, um, was was Christ in this work triumphing over Satan? Um, boy, Scripture says an awful lot about that. I'd have to include that. Um, well, what about the angels as they were witnessing, you know, to this event, observing what was going on? It turns out a lot of theology has been written on that, kind of in the corners of, of the, uh, you know, of dogmatic theology textbooks uh, or systematic theologies. Um, so if, if you if you lay out the doctrine in terms of the the the, the characters active in this drama, it's a really helpful step. Um, and of course, the the Trinity there takes the the prime of you know pride of place. Mm. The, the 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 second main element in any any theory of the atonement, and and this is probably the most important thing I try to develop in the book, is uh, the divine attribute that one emphasizes in one's account. Hmm. So so you know if 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 you're watching you know watching a clip on YouTube, and uh, and your volume isn't working, <laughs> and you just get to watch just seconds of it, right? Um, it's it, it could be a very passive experience. You don't really know what you're supposed to be seeing. But if there's a Hans Zimmer soundtrack playing, you're immediately tense and you 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 know that you're expecting action. <laughs> Whereas if you have I don't know some like Enya <laughs> New Age soundtrack that you know where it's trying to lull you to sleep, you're, you're thinking something very different. It's the same you know you're, you're observing the same scene, but but the music makes you feel very different about what you're watching. <laughs> um, the attributes that we use to explore the doctrine of the atonement do the same thing. Um, because as you listen to people talk, they'll, they'll emphasize uh, one or more aspects of God's character. They'll, they'll start off with mercy, and they'll keep talking about mercy the whole time. Or they'll start off by talking about God's righteousness, and they'll emphasize that throughout. And they might allude to something else, but righteousness is really the way they're thinking. I've found that that, that choice of what attribute to emphasize gives the account that follows its flair, its character, its shape. And then if you, so if you switch, if you ask someone, okay, you've been talking about righteousness all this time. What happens if you unfold, what if you happens if you repeat everything you just said, but change it to categories of witness or sorry, not witness, um, wisdom, mm. you know, what would be different, you know, and then they try to do it and they start realizing parts of it are hard to say <laughs> some, some of them because now they want to correct it. Some of them because they just need to find a different way of putting it, um, so, so that, that insight, um, that, that gave me the key in many ways to interpreting the theological works of others. Hmm. Um, and it's fantastic to observe the way the theologians um, do this. They don't tell you they're doing it often, more often than not, but as you begin to look for it, you'll see it. Uh, from there also, you know, unpacking the, the nature of sin, you know, whatever, whatever attribute you're emphasizing, it has its corresponding, you know, uh, way of unpacking sin. You know, if God is just, we're guilty. If God is holy, we are unclean. If God is wise, we are fools, you know, so on and so forth. And that gives us very different pastoral insights, you know, into our congregation, into our friends, into ourselves, as we see these different aspects of sin unpacked within our lives or our cultures. Um, and then, and then pulling those all together, how does Christ bear it? Christ, how does Christ, who is the eternal son, bear our sin so that in himself, that attribute can overcome that sin is sort of the mechanic of the whole doctrine. And then the, the, the last thing to, to observe is the way that heaven or salvation gets unpacked as the fulfillment, as the living out of that divine attribute in, in, um, in both in the present life, in the in the Christian life, and then in, in the life to come. So the, the, I, I know that's really fast. Um, you know, it's trying to take takes a chapter to unpack it. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> but but breaking the breaking a, anyone's account down into those five main areas, I, I have found to be very helpful in understanding what they're doing. Yeah, and you know, you you mentioned the word orthodoxy in the title of this chapter, and and you sort of connect, uh, you make a connection between these five elements that that are necessary to any legitimate theory of the atonement, and and uh, what it is are the right and wrong ways to approach the question of orthodoxy. It, it's not as simple as saying is, you know, is this person's view of 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 the atonement orthodox or not? And yet you do say that you can rightly reject, if I understood you correctly in the book, you can rightly reject a view like that of. Society 
Socinus, for example, as being unorthodox. So, so how do these five elements sort of inform uh, and, and shape a better question about orthodoxy than we're accustomed to asking? Good, good. Um, because the atonement is a synthetic doctrine pulling together a whole bunch of other doctrines to make its own claim and insight, orthodoxy is a little bit more of a, of a nuanced thing. Mm. <laughs> now, so if you're talking about the death and re- say the resurrection of Jesus and whether he rose from the dead, well, if you say yes, that's orthodox. And if you say he did not, then that's unorthodox. That's, you know, it's fairly straightforward. Um, but since there are so many elements going into an account of Christ saving work, you could have a very easily have a blended, <laughs> a blended statement that has a variety of orthodox components, unorthodox components, potentially becoming orthodox components. <laughs> hmm. So, so what does it take for a statement to be orthodox? Um, well, everything that it affirms needs to be true, and it needs to come together in a way that sufficiently explains the work of Christ. Um, and so, each of its parts is measured according to Holy Scripture. Um, but I also think another element of its orthodoxy is it needs to not rule out other equally true affirmations. We're, we're really eager to say this one view is orthodox and the others are unorthodox and use orthodoxy to rule things out. In the process, I've found people ruling out an awful lot that I think the church needs to affirm. Hmm. Um, so, so in this case, I think... I think an image I use in this book is uh, that orthodoxy has more to do with a, a, a region, a really like almost like a, a fertile valley where an awful lot is happening and growing and coming to life. Now that doesn't mean anything goes, but orthodoxy in this case, in this doctrine, really needs to be an expansive orthodoxy that isn't just boiled down to bare bones where we can say yes or no on one thing. Hmm. And do you think it also means that when uh, examining the view of the atonement that somebody else has, uh, we ought not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. If, if, if somebody has a view of the atonement that contains certain elements that are, that are unorthodox, maybe that doesn't automatically mean that other elements of his or her view of the atonement are, are worth rejecting as well. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah, that, that's something I'm, I'm, I'm writing a short little book for Lexham Press right now for their snapshots series, and uh, it'll be on the atonement as a work of wisdom. And I I realized at some point along the way that we can talk about the atonement, but then as we debate about it, we drop the theology in practice. And uh, so that that was kind of convoluted. Pardon me. (laughs) Um, When we talk about the atonement, we need to be just as eager for the at-one-ment or the reconciliation to happen in our speech as the doctrine we talk about. Hmm. So, so, you know, the atonement is about God reconciling all things to himself. When we talk about the atonement, therefore, we should be equally eager to reconcile all things to what we need to affirm about the atonement. So conversations about the atonement should be colored through and through by an eagerness to affirm, bring together, synthesize, appropriate, appreciate. Where necessary, we need to critique and challenge and perhaps cut things off or, or, or you know, make, make denials and negations. But the, the, the primary mode of thought should be, no, we're looking for, for oneness. We're looking for, for unity and uh, we should be eager for that in our interactions on the atonement. So, you know, I don't, I don't care who I'm talking with. If I can find anything to affirm, I'm going to start there and try to work towards a greater harmony and synthesis, even if I need to disagree with things along the way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm, I'm going to skip over a couple of chapters where you talk about those five elements. In, in chapter three on the doctrine of the Trinity, you talk about the cast, and you have a lot of fascinating things in there that listeners are going to be interested in reading about, the need for a mediator, the question of divine violence, the atonement as work simultaneously of the one God and at the same time of the individual members of the Trinity right. and so forth. And then in chapter four, you, you develop the other four of those elements. Uh, you, the chapter is called Atonement and the, and the Divine Attributes. And again, a lot of really fascinating things here, divine simplicity, the doctrine of appropriation, but I'm going to leave that stuff to the listeners to go check out. I, I want to touch briefly on Chapter 5 next, 
because you make a really good point, I think, in this chapter and, and develop a really good point, which is that far too often when we think about the atonement, uh, we tend to think almost exclusively, if not, in, you know, vastly primarily in terms of the cross, in terms of Jesus' death. Uh, but the, the interesting title of this chapter is The Atoning Life. Of Christ, and and in it you examine the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, as well as Pentecost and the Second Advent. So, what are what are some of the ways in which Christ's whole life, both pre-cross and post-cross, inform a more complete understanding of the atonement than we get when we only focus on his death? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'd, I'd studied the doctrine for probably about five years before I came to this shattering realization that the resurrection mattered <laughs> and, and 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 now that now i'm i'm ashamed of that i can't i can't believe that but i, w- I was faithfully and carefully reading anselm and calvin and you know and, and you know all those folks and all all i really knew about the resurrection was that people argued about its historicity but when <laughs> i read those arguments i didn't find them to be particularly interesting because i didn't really have a strong sense of why it mattered uh, and I read a book by T.F. Torrance, uh, Space, Time, and Resurrection, and that book somehow shook me awake to realize what people had been saying, and I just didn't have the ears to hear. But then as I read back through the do- history of the doctrine, then I re- really kind of came to life. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 15 came into its, you know, its, into its pride of place. That was, a, you know, that was a perfect instance of theological interpretation of Scripture where the work of theologians helped give me new eyes to see what was actually in Scripture. Hmm. And, you know, Paul's saying in there, like, if Christ is still dead, you are still in your sin. And he was raised for our justification. Um. Paul was putting massive emphasis on the resurrection. And uh, so he and Athanasius and Bart and a number of others, Hans von Balthasar, together helped me see that the work of Christ wasn't even primarily about the death. It was primarily about about the resurrection, about God's God bringing his creative project, bringing creation to fulfillment in the new creation, which is the resurrection. That just that blew my mind, and from there, from then on, I was on a completely different track for trying to develop the doctrine, which needed to honor the death, but was primarily about the resurrection. Hmm. You know, but but then once you start, you know, once you realize, oh, you know, it's it's you know, fishing isn't just about the bait. <laughs> hmm. You know, you, then you start you start realizing, oh, it's about the line and the rod and the lake and the whole ecosystem, and you you just start once you start going, you realize how big this is. Um, so yeah, from there I, I started seeing how the, the Christ descent into hell, um, developed in, um, Hansers on Balthazar and, and Karl Barth's theology and Moltmann, you know, I helped realize that Holy Saturday was just a vital part of Christ's work. Um, you know, the, the, the descended work of Christ, you know, as it developed in Hebrews. Um, but then I wanted to work backward too, realizing that, that, the, the life of Jesus Christ prior to the cross was the life of salvation into which he was inviting us by means of which he was recapitulating the entire history of Israel and so bringing it to completion and salvation. You know, all of this started coming together in a big picture, realizing, okay, his work is way bigger than the cross. Mm. Now, now, to be fair, it focuses on the death and on the resurrection. So that's sort of the center of gravity, that, that, that uh, it's sort of a twofold twin center of gravity. And from there, you can spread out and see the whole, how the whole life and existence of Jesus is saving. But the death and resurrection, in my mind, are, are, are central. Um, but yeah, that, 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 that was sort of the process as I realized how big you know, that dimension of Christ's work was, that it, it took his whole life. Yeah. Very, very interesting. One last question I want to ask you about your book, and, and it's about chapter six, uh, called Atonement and the Created Spectrum. It, it, because in the conclusion of this chapter, so you, you let me back up. You, you, you go through this chapter explaining, um, how, you know, typically when we think about the atonement, we think about mankind as the target of the atonement, if you will, the, 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 um, wh- who it is that the 
atonement is for. Uh, but in your, but in your chapter, you go through explaining how the atonement is also for angels. It's for God himself. It's for animals and for creation itself. And in the, and in the conclusion, even for demons. And in the conclusion of the book, you write about some of the dangers that we, that we risk when we neglect various of these targets of the incarnation and the atonement. What, what happens, for example, when we ignore the relevance of the atonement for the earth, uh, or for the demons and so forth. So, so what are some of these dangers that we face when we neglect these other less often thought about targets of the atonement? Right. Um, well, you know, you know, if I, if I had a, you know, a college student that I was talking with who was, who was thinking about proposing, uh, to his girlfriend, um, one, one of the things that I would want to help him see is the, 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 the full implications of marriage um, especially if he, if all he talked about, or, or if as I was talking with him, he was really only thinking about the woman he would be marrying. And fair enough, he would be marrying her. But, but there's that relationship involves um, so much more. It, it involves the, um, you know, her extended family. It involves her hopes and her aspirations. It involves the, you know, the whole ethnic group of which she might be a part. It involves, um, you know, it, it involves, you know, American society, which supports the institution of marriage. You, you, you start seeing a bigger and bigger picture of what's going on within this dynamic. It's not just the union of a man and a woman. There's an awful lot more going on there. A similar kind of thing starts happening when you, when you frame all of this in terms of this work of Jesus was not simply a work of saving you so you wouldn't have to go to hell, but you could go to heaven. Rather, this is the work of the one who made creation in order to bring it back to its fulfillment. Once you start seeing that, this is about the creator doing his work of recreation, then, then you know, all of a sudden you you've panned out to a to a vision that's so that's so big, it's breathtaking. Mm. Um, there, there are, there are strengths and weaknesses in a, in a really, in in a panorama. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, it gives you a lay of the land, you know, it's beautiful, it's stunning. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, you, you want close up shots to really get the nuance and the detail of any particular item. You know, so a panorama is great for mountains and, and lakes, it's pretty crummy if you want to get a you know a close up look at a rose or a daisy or something. Um, so we you know we we need different ways of seeing this doctrine, um, but seeing this as the recreative work of the Creator allows you to see how much is going on beyond the salvation of souls. Mm. So the you know the, the the first step is to see this is about my body, and then, and then the resurrection helps us see that. Uh, but then there are hints and whispers and things in Scripture about the groaning of creation, you know, longing for our redemption. And I think it's, uh, what is that? It's somewhere around Romans 6, 7, and 8, uh, off the top of my head. Um, and then and then you find theologians, when they're not, you know, just, you know, here and there, they'll drop a, a one-liner or talk for a page or two about about the angels or about, you know what? You know how how is Jesus's death relevant for the demons? I mean, obviously they're not saved, but you know this isn't the death and resurrection isn't merely a work of salvation. It's also that, but it's also doing a lot, it's doing other things. For example, um, you know the, the, through his death and resurrection, Jesus is establishing order. Um, you know, order isn't salvation, but but they're woven together, and uh, he's putting everything in its proper place. Hmm. You know, so, so, you know, um, Boethius helped help me see that. Um, so, so seeing this as uh, the, the doctrine of the atonement as tied to the doctrine of creation, then gives you the first, the first move to opening up the, you know, the, you know, swinging the doors wide open and seeing the fullness of what's going on there. The danger, of course, is that you have too big of a vision. <laughs> you know, it, it would be really hard to walk around in life with binoculars instead of glasses. You'd be running into things all the time. On the other hand, if all you could do is look at the horizon, you'd be of no good to anybody either. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, you know, the, the focus in Scripture is clearly on God's salvation of humankind through the fulfillment of his purposes for the people of Israel through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
that involves, of course, the bringing of the Gentiles and uh, me, if not you. I, I don't know if you're of ethnicity. But, um, I am a Gentile as well, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, but, um, but if you don't have a, if you, if you don't have room or a place for these other categories, then your doctrine's too small. Yeah. Well, very good. Um, I, I want to begin to wrap things up, as I almost always do, uh, by giving you an opportunity to share a final word with me and my listeners. So, something that you hope that we take away from this discussion after the recording is over, if we forgot everything else that we heard, besides, of course, going and getting a copy of your book. I mean, that's an important takeaway as well. But, but, but again, if, if we've, if, if our listeners walk away having kind of forgotten most of what we've talked about, what would your parting message to us be as, as we wrap things up right now? Huh. Um, it would be th- th- this. This doctrine is so much more than an answer. Th- th- this doctrine is is a is a whole is a whole way of a way of life, hmm. and it is it is as big, it is as life giving as God Himself, because this is the doctrine that unpacks God giving Himself to us. In order to make us anew, so that this doctrine is so much more than answers to a few questions. It's so much, so much bigger than you know a handful of truth truth claims and Bible verses. Uh, this is where it all comes together, and uh, it it takes a it, it takes a lifetime of joyful um, delving into this doctrine to understand what God has for us. So you know whether whether folks read my book or not, you know that. That's that's neither here nor there. Hopefully, it'll help a few folks. Um, but diving into the thing itself, exploring what God has done for us in Jesus Christ—that that's the core. That's that's the, that's the heartbeat of the Christian faith, if not the doctrine of the Trinity. They're they're bound together. So it's hard to say. Hmm. Uh, but that, I think I think that's what I would say. All right. Well, I do think that your book is very valuable, and and one of the things I really appreciated about is about it is some of the questions that you prompt us to think about that we might not normally think about when we're talking about the atonement. And so, I encourage my listeners to get their hands on a copy of your book if they want to do so. If they've been sufficiently teased into doing so by our conversation today, what's the best way? How, how would you recommend that they get a hold of a copy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're available on Amazon, uh, twenty-seven bucks or something like that. If they'd like to, if they'd like to order a copy for me personally, I'm glad to sign a book or something. If, if folks are interested in that, they can contact me through the Biola University website. Um, just look for Adam Johnson uh, at, at at Biola University and send me an email. Um, but, but those are those are really the the two ways. Um, so yeah. Okay, and and only ten dollars uh, for the Kindle edition as well, uh, for those of yeah, my yeah, listeners. Yeah, I forget about that. I I, I I personally hate reading books on a computer. I love having <laughs> something in my hand, but maybe I'm an old dinosaur in that way. So, so yeah, there are digital versions available and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I'll make sure to include links to those things in the show notes. Uh, Professor Johnson, thank you so much for spending this time to, with me tonight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and, th- and thank you, thank you for reading the book carefully. The, the questions showed that, and I, I appreciated the good questions. Thank you very much. Well, as I normally say at the end of every one of my episodes, there you have it, and I hope you enjoyed listening to the interview as much as I did conducting it. Please do send me any questions you'd like me to answer in the monologue of my next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then...